You're a Chapo listener. I get it. You're hip. You're cool. You don't need to buy any products. Those things are capitalist. And that's neoliberalism. And now, colonialism too. Wow. But have you ever encountered a product that completely defies the labor theory of value? Like Ozembic. Or God. Yes, Liz. Like God. And like God, we here at Truanon are getting ready to launch a new product that is going to heal your life and change your shit around in a crazy way. That's right. We're putting out a board game. And not just any board game. A board game based around the events of January 6th, 2021. It's called Storm the Capitol. Play as one of six patriots as you go from room to room, overturning desks, taking hostages, fighting the police, and collecting the 100 ballots you need to make it to the roof to Donald Trump's waiting helicopter. But wait, one player takes the role of the Capitol Police, using any means necessary to try to prevent the Patriots from changing history. Deploy tear gas, attack dogs, and more. Once the National Guard backup gets there, the game ends and Joe Biden becomes president. Oh no! This is a real, kind of complicated board game based on one of the funniest days in American history. January 6th was about having fun with your friends. Storm the Capitol lets you do that forever. So get ready to play Storm the Capitol, the board game. This extremely limited, exclusive Truanon edition will be available on January 6th over at Truanon.com. Again, that's January 6th, 2024 at Truanon.com. Brought to you by Creamhound and Truanon. Bye-bye. Greetings, friends. It's Chapo back at you for 2024. It's Thursday, January 4th, our, officially our first show of the new year. And in a little bit, I'll we'll be talking to a guest about some of the current affairs of going on in the world today. But before I get into today's show, I would just like to begin my first official broadcast of 2024, the first official Chapo of the new year. To wish you, all the listeners, a happy new year, but also to, uh, to, to, to comment on Matt, as I'm sure many of you are, uh, he is in the forefront of your thoughts as, as the show progresses in his absence. And I would just like to reassure you that he remains at the forefront of our thoughts as well. And that in, I, under, I understand um, your frustration uh, about, you know, a, a, any lack of clarity or a schedule for his return. But all I can tell you is that like uh, 100% our goal is to have Matt uh, back on the air as soon as he is willing to and as soon as he is able to. Matt has not been replaced on this show in any way. We are holding the storefront down into, for, for his return. But I, I just would like uh, just to ask for your patience and just like forbearance as we, as, as we enter this new year with still some uncertainty as it, as it regards uh, Matt. But I would just like to share that, you know, like he spent the holidays and the new year at home with his family. He is in recovery. He is doing better. And it is, it is all, all of our goals that he return to the program as soon as he is willing and able to do so. So I would just like to share that with you and uh, just ask for a, a little bit of your patience. And I understand the, the some, somewhat of the frustration. This is up in the air and that like, you know, uh, we, we are choosing to not... Um, share the full details of what ha- what happened until Matt is ready to return and share that story for himself. But I mean, yeah, so I just continue to ask for everyone's patience and um, 
share in your in your wish for for Matt's speedy return to the program and uh, and all your love for him and his family. We are now in um, a Chapo arc that's like one of the Dragon Ball Z arcs where they just keep cutting back to uh, Goku in the recovery chamber. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> that, He's so training in ten times gravity. Yeah. yeah, you have to insert that that you know every every twenty minutes when we we take a break or switch subject, just insert a cutscene of him in that yeah. goo chamber, breathing through the tubes and and gaining strength back one percent at a time. Oh no, this stinks! But until I get my strength back to one hundred percent. I'm totally useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now for today's show. Meanwhile, back on planet Namek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we are joined on planet Earth uh, for today. And uh, I'm joined by our good friend, uh, the journalist Seamus Malakoselli, who you've heard from us before, who is uh, calling in today from Beirut, Lebanon. And you can guess what topics we'll be discussing with him today. Seamus, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be back. So, Seamus, it's a new year and like we closed out the new year or like I closed out the new year, like just sort of exhausted by just the horrors of the ongoing catastrophe in Gaza and like sort of ashamedly, like I, there was some part of me holding out hope that there would be some sort of like Christmas ceasefire or that some, some element to the U S government would like reassert control over a rapidly escalating or just like a situation that is unspeakable in, in every regard. Um, that has not happened, and it really does seem like the, the worst of this is yet to come. And I want to begin today talking uh, with Seamus about the events that took place in Beirut just over this past week. Israel announced um, an airstrike of a Hamas office located in a neighborhood in, in Beirut, a sort of like the Hezbollah-aligned neighborhood. They assassinated a Hamas leader, and they did so without telling the United States they were doing it, uh, attacking yet another another country um, in in this uh, broader theater, which is just one of the the many ways in which like the, this this war contains the possibility of a really frightening escalation into a wider regional conflict. So, Seamus, I'll just begin with you. Can you just tell me what it's like in Beirut right now, and what exactly happened over uh, the course of the last week or so? I mean, at least where I am at the moment, I'm within Beirut proper. There's, I think, a certain attitude by a lot of people that the southern suburbs of the city are almost like a different universe. Fundamentally, the things that happen there aren't going to affect what happens within the city, even though they're only a couple miles away from each other. Um, the strike in Dehe in the southern suburbs, um, I went to it yesterday. Yeah, it's a residential neighborhood. Um there's, there's themed restaurants nearby, lots of people uh, rubbernecking at it. It's an extremely striking, brazen thing. This kind of thing has not happened since 2006, since the, uh, the, that war with Israel, when Israel's air force was bombarding Beirut, South Beirut, day and night um, for more than a month. Uh, they had forces on the ground uh, in southern Lebanon attempting to invade um, before Hezbollah forced them into a ceasefire. I think there was an anticipation that this would be the red line that was crossed. It had been believed that if the IDF were to strike inside Beirut itself, if they were to abandon the current lines of engagement alongside the southern Lebanese border, that this would be the thing that would force Hezbollah uh, into action. And Hezbollah, Nasrullah had, had spoken uh, yesterday night 
And again, he is erring on the side of, of caution and trying to make Israel fear what response it will give, which he said would, would be without boundaries, without rules. Israel, I think, is hoping for Hezbollah to take that bait. And it's going to keep pricking and pricking at Hezbollah and Hamas within Lebanon itself until it gets what it wants. Because the current situation uh, on Israel's northern border, on Lebanon's southern border, I, I think is, is unsustainable. Now, you mentioned that the neighborhoods in the, like, the southern districts of the city in which this airstrike occurred and are sort of considered like sort of, Hez- I don't know, like Hezbollah neighborhoods. Is that a fair thing to say? These are sort of, how would you describe I mean, that? Dahia is, I would say, under a lot of Hezbollah influence. It is a major support area for Hezbollah. Um, when you go down there, obviously, I mean, there are portraits of Khomeini, of Soleimani, of Nasrallah. Um, there are billboards of Hezbollah fighters who have died in Israeli strikes in a lot of places. There are statues of Hezbollah fighters. Um, but the language that has been used by the Israeli media and the American media describing it as a Hezbollah stronghold, I think, is, is inaccurate and perhaps even dangerous. Um, because it implies that they are within the same kind of territory as, you know, Hamas in Gaza. And we saw that language being deployed, uh, you know, with the, the Hamas-run health ministry to say that the casualty numbers were incorrect. And I think utilizing that sort of language with, with Dahia g- gives the implication that this is like a military uh, installation and, yeah, and it's not like, it's, a, it's, a neighborhood. Yeah. It's the language that would imply that this is just another like residential neighborhood that is in fact a like some sort of uh, I don't know front in a war that mm. is now totally okay to just bomb whenever you want. Like, uh, but I wanted to ask, like you, you said that in sort of downtown Beirut, there's the, this kind of feeling that what what happens uh, what happens over there is sort of disconnected or is somehow separate from broader Beirut or just like is contained in some way. I guess I'm just wondering, like, what's the feel when you go in these neighborhoods? Like what, what is, uh, what, what marks, I mean, you you said other than the murals, like what is the feel in those neighborhoods that are like, you know, targeted by this now? I mean, I was there, uh, just today at the, uh, the funeral of the, uh, Hamas official who was assassinated. It does not feel particularly somber or panicked or afraid in some way. It, it very much feels like, I, I wish, I, this may not be the right word in English to describe it because it, it seems, I guess, reductive, but there's a lot of, there was a lot of anger uh, in, the, in that crowd when I was there. I would think, understandably. It, it wasn't, um, the atmosphere in Dahia, I don't think was palpably different from Beirut in general, at least when I was there, when I go down there which I do fairly regularly. Again, war has been a pretty constant mainstay of Lebanon's recent history. Um, the civil war ended in 1992, which is, I want to say, in the living memory of, of most people who are listening to this, I would hope. And uh, again, war in 2006, uh, pretty much everyone experienced that one. Um, 2008, uh, there was a conflict within Beirut itself between Hezbollah and other um, factions. Um, 
then, I mean, the Syrian civil war brought millions of refugees in. There were clashes in Arsal, out in the east. Um, war and conflict is something that is obviously feared among people, but it does not cause, I think, the kind of mass panic that we would anticipate it would cause, for example, in America, um, where it would be so completely outside the norms of, of um, society that uh, it, it would break things down. I mean, my friend, um, Rokaya Shamsidin, there were reports of people who were obviously trying to leave the South, come to Beirut and uh, find apartments here that would be safe from the Israeli bombing. Uh, and I characterized that as panic. And she disagreed because she had relatives in the South of Lebanon who, you know, were talking about how, you know, they don't really mind the bombing, the rocket strikes. It's, it's, it doesn't strike the kind of fear in their hearts that Israel wants it to. Uh, so it, it's more, I think, measured. Um, but like, it, it would seem to me that the intended audience for this is the United States and our military rather than the people of South Lebanon, because uh, like you say, like it keeps, it keeps some um, sort of like uh, sort of pricking Hezbollah and Nasrallah to sort of provoke. It would seem to me they're trying to open up another front in this conflict in on their borders with Lebanon and to get the United States military to directly engage Hezbollah. Because I mean, like you're, you mentioned 2006, they were forced into a ceasefire then. Um, like was, was this airstrike about decapitating the leadership of Hamas or was it about provoking a response from Hezbollah? I, I think you're 100% right about trying to bring another front. And even though Saleh al-Aruri was a very influential, uh, important leader within Hamas, again, like with Soleimani, this this does not destroy the Hamas leadership uh, from within, like a pack of cards. Like they get rid of this one guy and Hamas in Lebanon just folds in on itself. If Israel moves past certain red lines that they believe to be red lines, then that puts the onus on Hezbollah to respond. Because, I mean, they have a domestic constituency as well that will begin to put pressure on them to respond in a way if they feel like they are, you know, uh, being made to look foolish or ineffectual in some way, correct? Oh, sure. No, that's that's an interesting dynamic that I've seen play out, uh, at least in interviews with people in the, uh, the Palestinian refugee camps here in the country. I've never seen the opinion expressed among Hezbollah supporters that they hate Nasrallah or they hate the Hezbollah leadership for not doing enough. But I think there are quite a few people who are disappointed, or I guess they wanted more out of this. If you tell someone that we're doing a a calculated response, that we're keeping the Israeli leadership on their toes, that we make them quake in fear of what we might do, that works on a lot of people, but a lot of people want, they, they want, like, do you remember the video that came out when the Houthis first seized the galaxy leadership? Yeah, absolutely. And you saw you saw the helicopter come in with the Palestinian with the flag, flags. yeah, and, and, and then and then all the awesome footage of all of the uh, like the captain and crew of the ship just chilling with them, chewing cot, having a great time. That that is a huge propaganda victory for the Houthi movement. It's why when they pulled Gazans during the ceasefire, Yemen's response was ranked higher in approval than Hezbollah's. That works better on people than, you know, videos of radar towers being 
destroyed and very blurry videos of IDF soldiers far in the distance getting struck by missiles. And yeah, um, I got to say, when it comes to the propaganda game, the Houthis are killing it right now. I mean, like, I remember reading something about how like in Yemen, there's a long history of like war poetry and they're really bringing it to the front right now. I mean, like that line, the Red Sea is a red line. But Seamus, the point you make is that in the, the Houthi propaganda videos, it is very much they are responding to like the, the anger in that part of the world and, the, and, their, and their desire for someone, anyone, any of these governments to stand up to Israel and to protect the people of Gaza. And the Houthis are like, if no one else is going to do it, it's all, it's all on us. So like, we're, we're proud to. We're, yeah, we're proud to die for this cause because, you know, like, where, where, where's all our friends? Where's our cousins? Exactly. No, Yemen has, I remember the feeling that I had when October 7th first occurred, in the days afterward. And the Houthis immediately jumped in and made statements to the effect that they might intervene. And at the time, I assumed that it was obviously... It struck me that there were a lot of factions in all these different countries all pretty much at the same time saying that they might act because that's somewhat atypical. But then the Houthis actually like start firing missiles at Israel and then they they close down the Red Sea to Israeli ports and and Israeli bound ships. And I don't know, it's uh, Yemen uh, is in a unique position here that they are taking advantage of in that they have a direct sea access route to Israel that Israel is not going to, it it is in a, it is in a geographic position in which Israel cannot easily retaliate against it as it could with Lebanon, obviously can't not allow an invasion. And it also is running up against the fact that Yemen defeated a multinational coalition of nations, Arab nations, which had all the U.S. military weaponry that they could possibly fathom, and it didn't do them any good. The Yemeni uh, armed forces under the Houthi-led administration, I think, have proven to be the most effective strategists uh, of this I mean, conflict by far. It's it's a point Felix made when you saw all of those kind of um, like real-time GPS ship, like like global shipping lane coordinates of ships at sea. It showed that 80% of like commercial like cargo traffic was diverted around the Cape of Africa rather than like up through the Red Sea and into the Mediterranean. And the point Felix made was like for the investment of like men, material, and resources versus the knock-on dollar effect that this is having on global commerce and the import of goods into Israel is is is, is stunning in terms of like like the the you know, bang for your buck in terms of a military operation. And not just commerce, within Israel itself, uh, the port of uh, Eliat, Israel's sole Red Sea port, uh, I want to say the figures that I saw is that uh, entries to it had gone down 85%. Uh, There were Israeli news sites saying the population of the city has gone down by thousands because so many uh, workers are, are leaving for employment elsewhere. Uh, tourism, which is a major source of income for the city, has also gone down. Um, this is a city that is not only being hit by drones from Yemen, but is also getting hit by drones fired from militias inside Iraq. It, it, it's kind of, I'm still kind of in awe about all that they've managed to accomplish just from where they are in this respect. And even, um, I mean, just recently on New Year's Eve, 
the U.S. Navy killed 10 Yemeni uh, naval men who were going to, I, I believe the story was that they were going to seize, not seize, uh, attack a, uh, a, a cargo vessel. And U.S. Navy comes upon them after an SOS call, kills 10 of them. And the U.S. coalition is expecting that the Houthis are viewing this as the kind of low stakes fight that, that the America thinks it is comparatively. This is about commerce. This is about trade. This is about freedom of navigation. But if you, as, as a member of the Houthi movement, as a member of their armed forces, view this as an existential war, that you are fighting for, you're, you're fighting for the survival of Palestine, the cause that has been guiding you your entire life that is the main animating cause like how are you going to be deterred by that you're going to be invigorated you're being targeted by the largest army on earth for what you're doing yeah they just moved another like aircraft carrier group into the region to to deal with um with, to, to deal with these guys you know which is not usually the opponents that are facing off against you know the u.s navy and it's not just a shame. Another interesting thing is like, it's not just that the, the sort of quirk of geography, which gives them, you know, not just access to like one of the most important shipping lanes in the world, but also some level of protection from um, Israeli retaliation. The other really interesting thing about in the, like the, the language of the Houthi movement in these military operations is that they are throwing right back in the face of the West and the rules-based international order, the responsibility to protect doctrine. That like not only do they have a responsibility to intervene, like every country has a responsibility not just to intervene, but to intervene militarily to to cease the you know the actions of an armed state carrying out a genocide. Yeah, it's uh, um, my friend uh, Matthew Petty uh, wrote about this. How the Houthis have completely adopted the language of the United States on this, and then throwing yeah, get, like as you said, throwing them right right back at them. They all read this. a problem from hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I see, um, I, I think a person that I think a lot of listeners might, might know about who, who tracked this, um, Al-Bukheti, their spokesperson, um, who is always on. Is he the guy wearing the bandoliers? Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah, got, yeah. He's got yeah, the yeah. bandoliers. He's got, yeah, yeah. He's smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we all know the guy. I mean, he's been tweeting uh, in in English and in German and and uh, all these different languages, and the language that he uses is virtually identical to statements that come out from the U.S. Navy, from the U.S. Army, from the State Department. But they feel entirely different because they're actually backed up by, I mean, what I what I personally think, others can disagree. I think is entirely morally just. Um, it's stunning to me the way that the U.S. has tried to cover up what the actual cause of this blockade is in trying to justify why Operation Prosperity Guardian uh, has started. I mean, even the <laughs> I mean, I mean, like it's a great name for this operation too, regarding prosperity, not uh, not guarding the prerogatives of our genocidal client state as they murder tens of thousands of people. Yeah, like oh, I mean. Human beings yeah. don't really care. Nope. But, but, You're talking freedom yeah, but, but, but of prosperity. Freedom, 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 freedom,
not just shaming the governments of the world that are abiding what's happening in Gaza right now, but like offering a alternative to the populations of supposedly democratic countries of what it looks like when your government takes a moral stand for something that's actually morally just and asserts itself very proactively to change the world for the better or to stop something horrible from happening instead of this song and dance that we do in this country about like, oh, well, you know, we've had very frank and candid conversations and we've assured the, everyone that there's going to be no mass expulsion of Palestinians, but we're rush, we're rush shipping artillery shells to them twice in the last month so to re-up their ability to do exactly that, expel millions of people from the Gaza Strip. No, I mean, there's this constant doublespeak in the West, in Israel, where there are the stated goals that are given in English and then amongst themselves, um, either in Israel, in Hebrew, or just behind closed doors in America, they talk about the real reasons why they need to do this, to do that. But in Yemen, the stated reasons to the public in Arabic, different public in English, and the discussions amongst themselves in Arabic are exactly the same. The cause is directly stated. You know, we can, if we want to be so wholly cynical about this and, and admit that, okay, they're not doing this entirely, the right word is altruistically, entirely um, uh, selflessly. Okay, yes, they want to be in a better negotiating position with the Saudis. Um, if you're in peace negotiations with Saudi Arabia, thre- threatening that you'll, you're willing to go to war with the United States is a great negotiating position to be in, um, I would say. But they, again, They've stated what will be required for the blockade to stop. They're not demanding, you know, the sun, the moon, and the stars here. They're not saying that Israel has to be like dismantled uh, tomorrow. They're not demanding, um, you you know, um, things that take a lot of time to, to do. They're asking for a permanent ceasefire. That is what they are asking. And then they will end the blockade. And we continue to have to do this song and dance where we pretend not to know what they want, even though they keep saying it over and over and over again. They want those ships. <laughs> they want they, the containers. They, they just want like, like the, oh they want God. all the prosperity that's for us. We have to they, guard it. Like I, I, I kept having to see these statements from, uh, God damn it. Eli Lake. We remember Eli Lake. Oh, right? oh we the love guy who looks Eli. Like a, like a, like a fucking Eggman. egg. Yeah, I am the um, Eggman. Cuckoo, cuckoo. God damn. He was talking about like. Oh, he's a real, real class from the past. And I've had to see his tweets recently because he's like, <laughs> yeah, he's really feeling himself. He's really feeling himself again. Because, yeah, like he whenever there's not some insane bloodletting going on in the world, Eli Lake is just like a non-entity, totally forgettable. <laughs> But man, oh, man, when the United States or Israel is really feeling themselves, you're going to be seeing Eli on the timeline. He's going to be feeling himself, too. And he's, he's feeling himself right now because a, a group that he hasn't to think about for a long time is now threatening something. And he's and he's talking about, like, why don't we strike the Houthi military positions, level them, and we'll show them what we mean. Like, nobody in the world has ever thought about that before. They just got to through. strike Yemen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They just got through like one of the the other worst wars of the 21st century. I mean, and and Seamus, like, when, when, you know, like uh, the 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 common response that, that I heard like over the past couple of weeks as as this as this Yemeni uh, naval blockade has begun in the Red Sea, 
is a lot of people are just being like, yeah, it sounds pretty good, but they're about to find out the reason why America don't, <laughs> Americans don't have health care. Am I right? And it's just like, well, yeah, I mean, like our, our Navy is vastly more powerful than theirs in terms of like men, weapons, material, resources, etc. But they've just got done facing nearly the full force of like all of uh, the best weapons that we could have on offer arrayed. Uh, directly at them with like no uh, no restrictions whatsoever and they won so i mean like well, yeah they it's, came it's out kind, more it's, powerful yeah it's kind of an empty threat oh my god it, it's <laughs> we we have to we have to like I, I, sorry, I need I need to center myself, and I need to I need to, <laughs> I need to go back to like like what are the points Just, I need to hit on? Yeah, the the, the thing about the, the the cause that they've had to they've had to narrow down for why the Houthis need to be eliminated this time because they can't reference what the actual cause is because if you explain the cause to anyone with a with a functioning brain, they're like. I feel like this could be avoided if like there's this I feel like this is the way and no not not just that but I feel like this is the way that we're told that good nations use their military force. Yeah. Like they, they were this is the way that we're told responsible democratic nations conduct themselves when a genocide is happening in the world. Yeah, they they put on the stops. They they're not um carpet bombing anything. They're they're doing what they can. <laughs> they gave out in, they gave out it. their delicious cot to the the crews of yeah, the, the, the Galaxy Quest specials. They're loving it. Oh yeah. my god. Oh my god. Other hostages are not getting that kind of treatment. That's for real. <laughs> yeah. And but they have they have to say that this is not not just about trade, but that the Houthis are are pirates. They're engaging international <laughs> privateers. Do you, yes. Yeah. They've received Do a letter like, of mark from <laughs> Nasrallah. <laughs> And and they and the idea is that it conjures up images in your mind of I think primarily Somali pirates, and we, right. we saw Captain Phillips. We yeah. remember the scourge of the of the seven seas. How how evil they were. How how money hungry they were. But then you put it under like any amount of scrutiny. And it's like okay, well they seized the one ship, but the the ship didn't really have any cargo on it. It was mostly to send a message, and they're not seizing any other ships. Really, they're just. They're striking them after numerous warnings, but they're also not killing anyone on these ships. They're not like technically if we if we put it under the magnifying glass, technically that is, quote unquote, piracy. But it's not piracy in the way that we would understand it and the way in which we would get gung ho about countering it. Like, again, they have to with everything in regards to Gaza, they have to disconnect it from Israel in some way. All the suffering, all the knockdown effects, all the escalation, it has to happen in its own sort of vacuum yeah. in which the, the axis of resistance and its factions and its nations have to be attacking Israel in some way that is entirely unrelated to the situation that is present at, at this current moment and as well the situation that existed before October 7th. I mean, uh, you, you see a similar dynamic with uh, the protests in America or Europe, like the, the you know the large and still ongoing um, acts of civil disobedience and widespread protests. It has to be about something other than the the very clear moral stand and ask that's being you know the, the why people are demonstrating is because like this needs to stop, and our and our government shows absolutely no indication that they were going they will lift a finger to not just stop it but to like you know cease to facilitate its ongoing you know this ongoing massacre
the like the the next um, or the, the last like rather large shake of this powder keg that's happened uh, recently, and that is the uh, terrorist bombing of uh, uh, killing several hundred people in Iran at the sort of at the gravesite of uh, General Soleimani. Uh, I just saw that ISIS has claimed credit for it. Uh, Seamus, what do you, what do you make of of, the, of this provocation and uh, any any possible uh, you know culprit or analysis of uh, who might be behind it? ISIS, Israel, uh, the, who, 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 who do we got here? I mean, just before anyone jumps down my throat, because I know inevitably there's going to be something typing. Um, there are instances in the past in which ISIS has claimed responsibility for an attack that they did not actually commit. This has happened a couple of times. I think most notably, uh, Las Vegas. People forget this. But after the Las Vegas attacks happened, ISIS put out a statement in which they claimed that uh, Stephen Paddock <laughs> yeah. was an Islamic convert who was well, attacked. You know, well, gambling is quite, quite sinful. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it's, not, it's not a be-all, end-all. Um, but I think it's if ISIS is taking responsibility in this matter, I think it's most likely them. Um, Iran has been subject to quite a few ISIS attacks over the past few years, but I think most people, including myself, admittedly, when this first happened, immediately suspected Israel because there was such a brazen attack on Beirut, a city that they hadn't attacked since 06, literally the night before. Um, I think people anticipated that it was part of that sort of steep escalatory strategy that they, that they wanted in which they would pull Iran into some sort of grand regional conflict. I, I think this one is on ISIS, but I think ISIS, uh, two things. One, I think ISIS is hoping that it will ratchet up the tension and that it will draw Iran and Israel into a war. And moreover, I think, I know Israel loves that this happened and it's benefiting from it right now. Um, uh, Daniel Hagari, the IDF spokesman, um, when he was asked about it, he refused to comment with the idea that we should have some plausible deniability about whether or not we did this. And as well, uh, the settler spokesman for Hebron went, uh, went on Twitter and said that perhaps Iranian freedom fighters committed this act uh, inspired by Israel's response to the October 7th massacres. They absolutely are, are, are they're, they're, they can't believe that this good fortune you know, fell into their laps in which Soleimani, a, a person who was was such at the forefront of the Iran-Israel proxy conflict in terms of propaganda, um, that such an attack was able to happen and they didn't really have to do a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, r- regardless of uh, the culprit for it, I mean, like, the, the intention and effect of it is clear if you are someone who hopes to, uh, I don't know, like, like, Turn, turn, turn the Gaza massacre into like, you know, like a table clearing sort of final confrontation between Israel, America and like Iran and its proxies. But I guess like this gets to the larger question about like these acts of provocation aimed out like, you know, because the neighborhood in South in, in southern Beirut, that's not Gaza. That's a different country that they just attacked. And now this bombing in Iran, like the intent of it all seems to be very clear. So I guess my question is. I know, like you said, like it, it, people are interpreting this as like Israel wants to expand this war. I guess my question is the obvious question would be why? 
because usually when you're engaged in a conflict, the you know, rule of thumb is that you don't open up additional fronts in that war when you're still fighting the other one. But like, why is that perhaps not the case um, in this situation? And like, what could be going on here in terms of like seeking to enmesh uh, other countries, but particularly the United States of America and its military um, directly in this conflict on their behalf? You're, you're correct. This is the normal calculus. And I think this is the calculus that the axis of resistance is operating within. As much as they would love to pour into Israel and free Palestine, liberate the prisoners immediately, they obviously have to be more calculated and measured and make sure that they're not overextending one another. Israel, on the other hand, has been living in something of a fantasy world for the past 75 years, maybe a little bit less than that, where the United States has given them overwhelming, unlimited support, both militarily and uh, rhetorically, so they can do whatever they want. They have been given a carte blanche beyond what many other countries have ever been given. Um, and I think they, I mean, I, I still think about this anecdote, and it's so hard to believe. Back in 82, when Israel invaded Lebanon, Reagan saw, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, he saw what was happening on television and he called the Israeli prime minister and he told him that what he was witnessing was like a Holocaust. And he told the Israeli, the Israeli. And leaders, he would know as he, you know, liberated a concentration camp in a movie. <laughs> Is that, oh my God, jeez. Um, and he, he got, he gets on the phone. He tells the Israeli leaders this, and they initially reject, but then they acquiesce. They acquiesce to Reagan because all the president of the United States has to do is tell them no. That is all they have to do. This is not difficult. It is extraordinarily easy and is known because past American presidents have done this before. Presidents who are far more conservative than Joe Biden is. And yet the pressure that has been mounted on Israel by the Biden administration can be described as nothing else, but I, I mean, it's air, it's vaporous, it doesn't exist. It's, it exists insofar as the uh, American uh, representatives of the UN will say, you know, we're, there should not be a forcible displacement of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip, as other ministers have suggested. And like, it, it should. It, yeah, should. The should operative is the word. And then also forcible, because I guarantee you, like, okay, like there are these statements now that we're seeing from Ben Gavir and Smotrich that is um, necessitating a response from a State Department spokesman, Matt Miller. And they're saying, like, and Ryan Grimm got him to say, go beyond should and say, like, must not, right? But I think, I think, I think the other key word here is forcible, because we all know that this is the policy, despite what the United States says they can and can't abide. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing we won't abide. I think that should be clear at this point. I think it is going to be met, meted out under the rubric of that this will be a voluntary immigrant. That just like people are choosing to leave because if they stay, they'll be killed. Well, they, 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 they of course, they won't say that. Yeah, well, they will, I mean, like, yeah, of, they won't say murder. the second yeah. part of that. They'll just yeah, say, yeah, yeah. No, they'll, they'll, say, they'll just say like food and medicine, like food and medicine is on this side of a line. And mm -hmm. like, that's what or, they, or, they, they went, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I see, I see, I see the pundits, the pundit panel conversations before me. I see the newspaper columns before me, and I, I visualize it as the prophets did in the Bible. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I see. I, it is, it is already, it is so clear to me it that is I written. talk about it as if it has already happened. It is written, like it is written. You see it as okay. Look at look at Gaza. This humanitarian catastrophe, this famine, all the disease, all the destruction. They have no homes to go back to. Uh, Hamas has ruined their lives. It has brought an unconscionable war upon them. We should do the humanitarian thing. We should reach within our hearts, our moral center, and we should grant the Gazans passage outside of their prison. Right. We'll send them to Congo. We'll send them to some other country in Africa. Congo was literally the country that they're talking about sending these people to. And I'm surprised it wasn't Madagascar. Yeah, this is literally like I have we have these conversations as if they're novel, as if they're they've never been thought of before, that we're thinking up of new political innovations to solve these crises. But voluntary immigration was literally the language that was used to justify plans by the Nazi government to send Jews elsewhere. There were thousands of Zionists who were told by the Nazis, hey, I got a great deal for you. You can go to Palestine right now. All you have to do is leave your homes forever. And they took it because the threat on the other side of that was death. This is not a voluntary choice. This is, this is ethnic cleansing. It's a genocide. We've seen this time and time again. But there's a, there's a nearsightedness that colors all of this. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, just today. Uh, Boys are back amazing, in town. <laughs> oh my I, I love, god! I, I re, like reappearing onto the public consciousness at exactly the right time, and, and I, you know, like, to, to the government of Israel out there, if you're listening, I just got to say to you, please, more Dershowitz. Please, like you're, you're, the survival of the Zionist project depends on the world's greatest lawyer. He got O.J. Simpson off. He will get the state <laughs> of Israel off. I promise you this. But he put out this op-ed, I think literally the day after he went on TV and I think said that uh, I want to see all the people pushing the Epstein list. I want to see if they condemn the Hamas rapes. Mm -hmm. Like this guy is fucking zooming (laughs) off into a different dimension with this ship. But he in this op-ed, he was like, you don't see the typical signs of genocide of the Holocaust. Oh, right. Which are the the gas chambers and ovens. Yeah. This is this is how. We as Americans have been conditioned to view genocide. This is what we think it is. If we see a mechanized death camp, if we see video of, we we would have to, you know, we would hear about people in, in gas chambers and they're tearing at the walls and and there's they have they have stars on their chests. Um, this is what we would we would be able to see as clear signs of genocide. But as long as we don't explicitly see such obvious signs even even between you and me i think if these obvious signs these incredibly obvious signs were to manifest i think we'd still be having these arguments of course we would because like i can't come up with a better like living example of a mechanized death camp than what the gaza strip is right now i mean if that isn't industrialized wholesale mass murder of a totally defenseless civilian population i don't know what is like, I There's mean, like no I, railroads. If I, if I could but, look at like yeah. like any, any of the images that I see coming out of Gaza of like summary executions of just the scale of devastation and starvation, 
and then like and then like the highly technological apparatus carrying it out. Mm-hmm. I don't know what other I don't know what other comparison do you want me to make here? We we've been conditioned to view an extremely narrow band. And when and when something expands outside of that narrow band and requires you to apply lessons and not to see simply see direct parallels that are completely one one, then people start losing their fucking minds. They 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 can't fathom it. They can't comprehend that this could happen again, and that moreover this is happening again with America's explicit aid and abetting. The country that constantly says never again, that we will always stop genocide, that we move. You saw what we did in Serbia. We saw what we did in Kosovo, in Bosnia. We protect people, don't we? And then, I mean, of course, it was always bullshit. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves. But it's so egregious what is happening. And we have to still have these granular arguments three months on where the 20,000 people are dead. And we're talking about Jesus Christ, the amount of stories about fucking Claudine Gay. Yeah. Who yeah. the, like, like well, I, I understand that there are obvious implications for, for free speech that is being like tampered no, down but, here, I mean, but like, the fact that it's, yeah, I, yeah. I don't, I don't, and like, I don't want to say that like the Claudine Gay thing doesn't matter because, you know, I mean like not to violate our policy of never caring about what happens in colleges <laughs> and certainly not Ivy League colleges on this show. Sure. Look. The, 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 this was made into a controversy. Yeah, yeah. Like the the, the implications here are obvious, right? But like mm. I think like outside of um in in, in like disciplining the disciplining academia from like a conservative because here's the, here's here's the real here's I mean like it's it's not any great feat of Israel supporters or the right wing to like to scalp a Ivy League university president because they are soft targets. And the thing is, all the university administrator and even probably most of the people who are losing their jobs themselves basically agree with them on everything. And they, they, are, they don't want mm-hmm. their students protesting for Palestine. They're sick of all, they, they, they don't want any wokeness on their universities out there. They're sick of it. So, but, but I, yeah, I will they, just but like, say, if, if I may, if I may, just to establish the difference between what is traditionally thought of as like pro-Palestine discourse on campus in America and what it is here in Lebanon. Yeah. At my old university, at AUB, Hezbollah runs in student elections. <laughs> that is the difference. Like night and day, we're having these discussions somehow. But please well, continue. Well, I'm sorry. I'm, no, no, I mean, I, I guess I like. I mean, I just think like the the the, the true like. I mean, like whether with, with, with the goal of the you know like scalping these these Ivy League university administrators are. I think like the knock on effect of it and the most useful effect of it is in the American media, in the liberal media, to transpose, as you said, Seamus, the flatly now undeniable truth of what is happening and then people's feelings of anger and outrage over it and then like transposing all of it into a thing that the liberal media and liberal media consumers like nothing better controversies about elite american universities and like so it's it's like the, the, so that gaza and palestine and what israel is doing is like it's, it's rarely even spoken about in any like in, in, except a barely even merits a mention in terms of like the, what, what kicked all of this off in the news coverage of it. But it's just a way for like for people to get angry and and, and sort of like and, and there's a disciplining effect. But I think it's just a way for the liberal media to cover what's going on right now while completely ignoring what's going on right now. Exactly. And and no, and I and Seamus, like you, you you mentioned to me before we before we started recording. I just wanted to like because, you know, like you're you're in, you're in Lebanon right now. But like as like a. An Ameri- like a, a consumer of media when you are outside of 
a Middle Eastern or Muslim country, when you're in the Western media bubble, I ask, this, I ask myself this question, how am I going to fucking not go insane? Like, I mean, how do I even keep getting on the mic every week and having to like talk about this shit over and over again, given what I'm seeing and just how fuck, like just how absolutely like grotesque and absurd the, 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 the kind of like the stakes and just like the, the moral questions that we're presented with in this country and like these, these little dramas that were given to distract, our, to, you know, distract us from like the political stakes and reality that's going on here. What does it feel like to be in a country with a different media environment? It's, it's a, I, I wish people could experience the kind of landscape that I am in. It's not perfect, but, but it's, it's, it's a night and day. I initially went back to America uh, at the beginning of October after things started popping off and I was, my mother, who I, who I love, was very insistent that I, I come back uh, at least for a little bit to see how things shake out. And I did. And over the course of the next two weeks, I, I like you, Will, I went completely insane. I felt like I, I had lost my marbles. I could not fathom the, the language that was being used by news anchors to try and distance Palestinian civilians from their own murderers. I felt insane constantly hearing Israeli narratives prioritized over the people that were being murdered in scores, viciously. And especially when Al-Ahli happened, when the strike on, on the hospital uh, happened that killed um, 500 people, which, which feels like ancient history now with so many hospitals that have been attacked um, without any sort of justification provided whatsoever. I remember the, the arguments that were being had there about cause, about attribution, in blatant defiance of what I could see with my own two eyes. And I, I knew that I needed to, to j- just get the, get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Um, with, with all due respect to my, my lovely family, who, who I, I will never abandon. Um, <laughs> And uh, when I came back here, oh my God, it was such a breath of fresh air. I, I could walk down the street and there were reminders of Gaza everywhere that I would look. Um, I would talk to people and we would be on the same wavelength. I wouldn't have to like talk about the, like, the conversations that I would have in America about why I was so depressed, about why I felt like I, I was losing it. I didn't have to have those kinds of, I didn't have to explain myself constantly in Lebanon. Everyone knew what, what was, why I felt this way because they felt the exact same way too. And in terms of journalism, as you were talking about, there's so much focus on Gaza. It is still the main issue. It is the front page news story every single day in every paper, basically. It's all that anyone really wants to talk about still because it is at the forefront of all of our minds. And Newspapers are willing to do like proper adversarial journalism against the United States and its foreign policy narratives in a way that American media is absolutely unwilling to do. It's immensely refreshing to have your priorities be the national media priorities. I don't want propaganda. I don't want to be lied to. I just want to like not. I, I want to feel not crazy. <laughs> yeah. it's a, to get some sense like you exist in the same moral universe as the one your body seems to inhabit, despite yeah. all outward uh, appearances. Otherwise, that you've passed through some membrane into some uh, like, you know, a, other reality other than the one that you can think and see and feel for yourself. The, the Be- big thing that I, I, I thought, and I think a lot of other Middle Eastern people thought 
is that I, I think a lot of people don't want to associate with America and uh, the Western world anymore. I think I don't have that luxury, obviously. Um, I, I, I was born in Wisconsin for, for, for Christ's sake, but go a lot of people <laughs> go back. Of course. And um, I'm a Badger family, man. Um, but the thing is, is that when Western newspapers, when Western pundits, when Western culture seems so invested in not seeing you as a human being, and it's become so evident and so obvious and so it, it, it's, it's, it's criminal. They, they, they don't see you as a real person who is, who, is, who is only separate from you by language and by birthplace. They see you as an it that is only to be mourned when you don't resist your own murder. And even then, you probably deserved it. Like that's an insane or that like that, that it's all understandable because like when when tons of Muslim or Middle Eastern or Arab people are, are die violently, it's like, you know, we've talked about this before on the show. It's like an earthquake killed them. All the people that are starving to death in Gaza, it's the worst starvation, the worst famine in the world right now. It's just like that just exists. It's like it's like gravity or something. It's a natural disaster. There's no one who's actually responsible for it. And. I guess like, I'll, I'll go back to where I started at the beginning of the show about like, you know, a- efforts to incite, you know, a broader regional conflict that Israel thinks it will benefit from because the United States will get involved and like be directly helping them in a way that we're just simply helping them in every other conceivable way other than directly using our military. I will just say that I think this is all happening because Israel has failed entirely to destroy the Palestinian resistance and it has failed entirely to contain public opinion in Europe and America and America in particular. I mean, like not like not least not like public opinion really matters to our foreign policy, but like it's unmistakable the desperation that they feel over this, because like if you look at polls, they got about another they got another generation to go and that and that's it. Like then their goodwill is spent. But like I, I just think like all of this is that they have they have not broken the Palestinian people and they have not broken at least Hamas's ability to resist them. And, and not only that, but like the broader, the world at large now seems to be four square against them entirely. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to, I, I mean, on January 1st, midnight, New Year's Day uh, here in Lebanon, once the clock struck midnight, Hamas was able to fire a barrage of missiles at Tel Aviv. And this had been 80 days into the war, something like that. Israel has constantly talked about how the northern sector of Gaza is under operational control, whatever the hell that means, that it's close to achieving the defeat of Hamas and it's within arm's reach and, and only, it'll only take a couple more months or a year or 10 years or whatever. They can't decide. They, it is shocking to me that even in the course of trying to perpetrate a genocide, they haven't diminished considerably Hamas's military capability. They've diminished it somewhat, but they haven't. There was, an, there was an expectation, at least, at least to me, that Hamas should not be able to fire as many rockets as it does consistently into Israeli airspace this far into a war that Israel claims to be winning. Um, they, they, what they do is that, you know, the IDF bombards these cities, flattens them, but Hamas squads, they disappear below ground. 
they 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 attack Israeli tanks, they disable them, they fire rockets at them, they maim Israeli soldiers badly, uh, they kill them in ambushes, and then they disappear back to the ground again. This is not a traditional state of you know command and control in which there is a specific town that is being held by a certain faction, and then the IDF sweeps in, and then that's that. Hamas just goes into a different level of control. And that is a level of control that the IDF is not prepared, fundamentally not prepared to counter. It's, I, I genuinely wonder how long this is going to go on for. Because like I, like I just said, they, they keep changing the amount of time that this is going to take. They, they, Biden wants this to be wrapped up like, he wanted this to be wrapped up by Christmas. And then that's completely blown past. And that's not absolutely not going to happen. And now he would like it to be done, preferably, I think, before the election. Because if this is still on the table, I think he is going to lose to Trump. Even if Trump is a war hawk and would absolutely give Israel, uh, I think, what it wants, if someone could convince him to do so. My, my fear is that, I, I think it's, unfortunately, I think it's a well-founded one, that there is not going to be a, a ceasefire uh, on the horizon anytime soon. Another one. I think... This is going to continue to build in Lebanon, in Yemen, because the United States and Israel are locked in this. And, Will, you put this exactly correct. The first time you said this, I was like, he got it. He said, you said it was a murder-suicide pact yeah. between Israel and the United States. However much the U.S. might want to extract itself out of the situation, they don't want to think about Gaza. They never want no. to think about gossip, but they, they don't want to think about this anymore. They want it to be done with. Um, and the longer they have to deal with it, the longer the longer it's a problem for Biden, it's the longer it's a problem for, for the United States' international reputation. But they can't back down from this, and Israel knows this. And that's why it's hoping that if they can provoke Hezbollah into a war, if they can convince the United States that they need to go into Yemen— they need to strike into Yemen, that they need to make that a front. They can bring the United States into these wars and make it something that they themselves do not need to fight. They can get soldiers that are better equipped, better trained, have better strategy. And this is not something that they have to deal with on their own. This can be a bigger civilizational battle that they right. can use to build support for their own government. That's a fucking disaster. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And like, um, just to underscore what you said, like, I really think like yeah, the United States, we're not changing. We're not changing course. Biden is locked into this. And I think like in his head and among his advisor or whoever is in his ear, uh, uh, I think that they're like, like this, this is a brave, you know, act of statesmanship, you know, like not changing course, seeing it through. So I think like U- U.S. policy is not going to change no matter how disastrous it is, certainly for the people of Gaza, but also for Joe Biden's own reelection campaign. But that being said, the media and like supporters or like people who want to see Joe Biden reelected cannot can no longer deny what's going on. And like the only people left really advocating for this slaughter are like are the, are the people zealously committed to the project of Zionism. And you'll notice that in, in, in the defenders of this ongoing violence, nobody is saying anymore Israel would never target a hospital. That's a blood libel to say. Uh, Israel would never, uh, you know, do a population expulsion. They're all just openly admitting because, you know, like there's nothing left for them to say. Oh, we're not doing that. Now it's we are doing that. 
try and stop us. But the thing is, like, that's, a, that's, a, that's unpalatable politically and untenable politically. So I think you're right that, as we're seeing with the Claudine Gay stuff, the liberal media is just going to do it, try as hard as possible to just move on and pretend like, uh, basically just be like, there's nothing else we can do. And I, I think this is the attitude that most of, like, the, the media and, like, our political consensus uh, going into 2024 is, I think, uh, best summed up by uh, uh, engagement farmer Aaron Rupar, who <laughs> says, who, quoted, who said this, my view on the Israel-Palestine conflict is that it's been going on for more than a century and there are shades of gray on both sides. It's not a simple story of good versus evil. This may sound obvious, but acknowledging complexity too often gets you tarred as a heinous person. So I really think that like th this, I think this is going to be the line going into the new year, which is that no one can deny what's happening anymore or Biden's complicity in it or the fact that like he could stop at any time he wants. It's just like the line is going to be, it's all very regrettable, but who can say what's right and wrong in this mixed up world of ours? And that like, you know, we have to, yeah. we have to acknowledge complexity now. We have to like, you know, sort of like find, find another, another nuanced angle, but like I mean, no one's, no one's describing the complexity or, or saying things in a nuanced way. They're just demanding that we not talk about it. Because exactly. because because it makes because it makes Biden's reelection chances circle the fucking toilet, and it makes them personally feel responsible, which they are. No, no, no. It, it's it's too. The only reason they say it's too comp, yeah, it's too complicated because they don't want you to discuss it. How can you possibly have an opinion on something? Yeah, exactly. If you if it's too complicated, <laughs> you should leave this thing to the suits in Washington. <laughs> Come on, guys, they got this thing handled. But you would never ever, even Aaron Rupar, the man who has never contributed anything of substance in his entire life, he would never have this opinion about like healthcare policy or, you know, tax credits who understands tax credits, but, but uh, like it is only the middle East. It is only foreign policy really substantially that has this common refrain from people. The dynamics are too complex. There are too many perspectives that need to be in, in, incorporated here. I think the great Michael Brooks, whose perspective is sorely missed, I think put it best about this when, when there was a, there was a Israel supporter asking about this. It's not complicated. It's super simple, right? There, there's one side that is being oppressed and there's another side that has operated with absolute impunity and has never been punished for anything. That, that's, there, there are obvious complexities within that. But the dynamic is easily understandable to anyone with a brain. Macklemore got it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Macklemore. Like, are you saying that you're dumber than Macklemore? I hope, I hope not, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Have some fucking respect for yourself. Well, no, I mean, it, it's just it, it, it's 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 the increasingly frustrated and condescending and angry demand that they be freed from the moral responsibility of continuing to support Joe Biden. And that like, and because, uh, like, you know, you notice they're not really even saying there's nothing he can do anymore. I think that they've just backed themselves into begrudgingly accepting what his policy is and just going, eh, you know, like, I, I'm just like, I'm willing to countenance this because the alternative is worse. Or that, like, in, in, in a real way, I'm willing to, like, accept it now as, like, a sort of new fabric of reality that we all just kind of, like, live with this kind of thing happening and, and the United States doing it. And I think that's what's uh, going on here. God, I, uh, the, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I, I got nothing. I was going to leave, I was going to leave it there on that cheery note for this episode. But 
<laughs> no, I, I was literally just about to, <laughs> to, to, to grovel and say that, oh, God, yeah. Now this shit sucks, man. Yeah. Well, on our way out, can I add, um, you know, your invocation of, of Eli Lake and Alan Dershowitz coming back in this moment um, reminded me of another person that I've enjoyed seeing pop back up, which is, Will, have you noticed that John Podoritz returned to Twitter after oh, yes. being off? For <laughs> yes, like, he did. For he like did to be horny about, he he really about OnlyFans. Yes, because he really did quit oh, for like God. three or four years. He's yeah. like, I've had enough of the toxic discourse here. They made a dramatic comeback shortly after October 7th saying, oh, I feel com- something like I feel compelled to come back here to, to combat the heinous misinformation that is popping of up course. on the site. By yes. which she means, of course, finding like 10 follower accounts saying I support Palestinian liberation and <sighs> RTing that saying like, look at this heinous a- anti-Semitism. But the thing that really entertained me <laughs> is that it took him a pot about one week yep. of his crusade to just uh, go back to adding services that have given him uh, ineffectual customer service and complaining about it publicly and <laughs> tweeting stuff like, did anybody think that Chris Pratt came out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as the best leading man? Or like, you know, just complaining yeah, about no, movies. The one, I, the, one I, the one I saw him one was, was like quote tweeting and responding to like the OnlyFans like uh, ads that they run on Twitter now for like yeah. OnlyFans is trying to be like, I don't know, like a, a comedy streaming service. And they're like, yeah. oh, here's a cooking what? show. Here's yeah, a cooking yeah. show with Riley Reed or whatever. And he's like quote tweeting it being like, is she a porn star or something? Porn um, actually censored the asterisks in place of the O. And then, like, yeah, just his cretinous <laughs> followers, yeah, just being like, oh, God, you know. So, like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's he, funny he, just he, to he see to him, come- like, deep down in his soul, the logic really there was, oh, God, thank God, finally, an excuse to post again. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's great. I mean, like, I, I, I love all the people that they're, they're, they're bringing out of retirement. Yes. Like Tony to Blair. Tony Blair is supposed to, like I the, the reports that he was going to oversee this population transfer. I mean, like that's the love of the game right there. He was in a cabin in the woods somewhere, <laughs> you know. You just shave like, off the giant like, beard. logs or whatever. A helicopter lands. They're like, Mister Blair, we need you back for one last walk ride. <laughs> I gave that life up. Psych. <laughs> Do we get to win this time? <laughs> 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 yeah. All right. Well, uh, actually, I, I, I will, I will, I will, I will. I'm going to save this episode. I'm going to save this episode of the pits of despair by doing a little plug for myself. If, 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 if you don't want to, you know, draw a warm bath and uh, start sharpening a razor after listening to this episode, if you are in the sort of southern Massachusetts or Rhode Island area of the country, um, Saturday night. Saturday night in the town of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Please come see me at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, where I will be Saturday evening reading from the great American novel Moby Dick as part of their uh, Moby Dick-a-thon, their annual live reading of the entire novel of Moby Dick. I'm scheduled to start reading on 6.55 Saturday evening at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in what I hope should should the readers should like the timing and everything work out? I think there is a good chance I will be reading the famous chapter, Satology. This sounds it's just about describing whimsical. types of blubber and stuff yep. like that. I will just be Perfect. describing different kinds of whales in the uh, in the, in the language in the pro in the prose stylings of America's Absolutely greatest gorgeous. novelist. As soon as we announced this, we heard many many comments saying that the Bed- New Bedford Whaling Museum just on its own is incredibly dope. So uh, a good excuse to go out if you've never been there. 
Yeah. Well, uh, I will see you in New Bedford, Massachusetts this weekend. Seamus, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, always you know, a pleasure. This, this, you know, discussing a miserable topic, but like, you know, like I, I you know, I always wonder, like, how am I going to get on mic and have to like keep talking about this because it's so awful. But I, every every hour I do, and I, I feel like I, at the very least, like exercise something inside me. Ah, same here. All right. Until next time, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye. So it's not a complex issue. That's the big thing. It's super simple. There's one group that has enormous power. It's the most powerful country in the Middle East. It's backed by the United States. It acts on another population of people with total impunity and is never held accountable for anything. So there's no symmetry in the relationship, period. And just as like a thought experiment, IDW people, if we know that if somehow a population of Jewish refugees ended up in West Bank in Gaza, and an Arabic government in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv had an open-air prison in, in what you know in Jewish Gaza, which they bombed with white phosphorus, they killed civilians indiscriminately, and they had no uh, provisions for medicine. They had an embargo that blocked food, that the electricity wasn't running, that there was an over 48% unemployment rate, life expectancy and malnutrition statistics were horrifying. The uh, one of the major uh, policymakers in this hypothetical Arabic Palestinian state said we need to put those Jews on a diet. In the West Bank, there was another Jewish area where there was a little bit more autonomy, but there was regular Arabic settlements where they pulled up the Jewish farmers' foods. They terrorized them with rocks. The security forces broke children's bones, and they couldn't drive their own roads. We'd all have no problem understanding what that was. So there's nothing complex about it. It's a pure asymmetry relationship, and the question is rights or not. So that's it. It's not complicated.